0: we have a God who speaks to us and who has things that he would like us to hear. So will you take just a moment and ask him to speak to you? Father, by the power of your spirit, will you say the things that you have for us to hear this morning, speaking deeply into our hearts, We might hear you, recognize you, be transformed by you. Will you do that this morning, we pray? In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, so much of language, right, is the the language, the the meaning that sits under the words. If you ask me, um, do you like 80s music? um, What I'm going to do is I'm gonna answer with the question that I actually hear underneath it, which is, why, Chaplin Lowe, do you believe that the 80s is the pinnacle of all human culture? (laughs) Um, So, right? Uh, And that's a good thing. Like, the answerer can answer a question that's not directly asked. And then um, it's come to my attention, and I've watched it happen more than a few times, that uh, when uh, gentlemen, and maybe this happens the other way around as well, I'm, I just haven't seen it as much, but when gentlemen uh, ask women questions like, um, hey, have you ever eaten ice cream? The thing sitting under there is, hey, wanna go like on a date with me, maybe go get dinner and then have ice cream, right? Now she's not s- going to know that, but the question is not being well represented by the question. Um, And it it, uh, seems to me that when we start to talk about questions surrounding scripture and and God and his faithfulness, um, a lot of the questions that get asked are kind of reduced down and boiled down to questions of goodness, the goodness of God. Um, Flannery O'Connor, she says that I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. And in my experience, so many of the doubts that I see in those of us who want to believe come down to questions of God's goodness. Is he actually really good? Because we live in a world where there's a whole lot of bad and a whole lot of hard things happen. Is God trustworthy and is he good? We're gonna reflect this morning on a passage uh, from Exodus chapter 17 where the the question that gets asked isn't really the question. The answer that's given is to the real question, not the question that's kind of brought up, but it all centers around this idea of God and His goodness. This is God's Word, and I'm actually gonna read this chunk of Exodus 17. So I'm gonna read it, and then I'm gonna basically retell it, and I think that as we kind of look at it the second time, a whole picture will come up The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from um, place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, I will stand there before you at the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that may seem like just a very weird thing that happened right there, but it's actually quite a lovely and beautiful thing that takes place. So the whole Israelite community has set out from the desert. They're traveling literally place to place as the Lord commands, and the Lord is providing at every step along the way, but they come to this place called Rephidim, and there's no water there for them to drink. So picture right, the entire Israelite community, some 20 to 30,000 men, women, and children, are following the directives of the Lord where they are to go. And a little bit of context here is three days after the Lord parted the Red Sea and the people walked through walls of water at the hand of God who is is holding, holding it up and delivering them in Exodus from Egypt. Three days after, they get out into the wilderness and they end up at this place called Marah, and the water there is bitter and they can't drink it and the people start to complain. And God says to Moses, there's a log, take that log and throw it into the water, and they throw it into the water and the water becomes sweet and God provides for His people. And then just a short time, just two months later, they end up again in a place where there's no water. They're starting to get hungry, hungry, and the people, again, begin quarreling with Moses. And Scripture makes it clear, their issue is never with Moses. Their issue is with the Lord. They're questioning, is God going to provide for us? Now He's provided at every turn He's provided. Well, this time, God says, Moses, tell the people uh, that I'm going to provide for them. Um, they will wake up in the morning. And they will find this crazy, flaky stuff that tastes kind of sweet, like, like honey covering the ground. It's manna. And they're to eat it for breakfast. They're to gather for six days. On the sixth day, they're to gather enough for two days because they're to rest on the seventh day. Well, they test it. Some of the people keep too much. It turns, in, turns bitter and gets wormy. Um, but God provides this manna for 40 years. Breakfast for 40 years. Is God gonna take care of us? Is He gonna provide for us? That same night He brings quail, a whole slew of quail, so they have meat and bread in their camp to eat. Just two months after, and again, anytime they run into these issues of being thirsty, not having food, is the Lord with us? They quarrel with Moses, have you brought us out of here to die? Why have you done this to us? We'd rather be back in Egypt. Well, they quarrel with Moses, said, give us a drink. And Moses replies, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty, and they grumbled. Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? You've brought us up clearly. That the result is going to be that we're going to die. And Moses comes to the Lord, and he says, Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And see, when Moses says that, it doesn't simply mean that the people are angry. Okay, something kind of, kind of important is happening here. Meribah, so the reeve in Meribah, actually means lawsuit. The idea that the people are ready to stone him means that the people are literally beginning to lay charges against Moses as a traitor. They're not just grumbling and being angry, they're saying, we wanna actually put you on trial for leading us to death." And Moses says, Lord, what am I going to do? They want to put me to trial, and they're ready to stone me because they are going to find me guilty. They're saying, you've brought us out to die, and if we die, you're going first, Moses. And the Lord does this crazy thing. He tells Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. So I've heard the grumblings of the Israelites, and I know what they're doing. They want to have a trial. And the Lord says, fair enough, let's have a trial. He says, Moses, you go with some of the elders of Israel, they will serve as the witnesses to the trial. And you take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, the staff of judgment, you're going to be the judge. They think that they're putting you on trial, but in fact, we're going to have the real trial that they want. He says, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb. So the Lord is saying, I actually will come and stand trial, because their charge is not against you, Moses, it's against me. So I will come and my presence will be with the rock at Horeb and so you know this is not just fanciful thinking Psalm 95 talks about this when the Lord is recounting this exact event he talks about the Israelites putting him on trial at Meribah putting him on trial and he says okay I'm gonna stand and the Lord literally identifies himself with this rock. Psalm 95, again, when he's talking about it, he he talks about, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, the Lord who is literally going to come and identify himself, his presence with this rock. So picture this, picture what happens. Moses comes out with the staff. The Israelites think that Moses is going to be on trial. The elders of Israel there stand as the witnesses. And the theophanic presence of the living God descends into their midst upon the rock. The same theophanic presence that was there in judgment in the Garden of Eden, the same presence, the living presence of the living God in his glory, clouded so that the people could actually be in its presence, but there in power and might. He comes and he's at the rock. And then he tells Moses the craziest part. He says, Moses, the stage is set. What should happen here is he should recount the Lord, his faithfulness to the Israelites. Delivery from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the provision of manna, the provision of quail, the provision of water. Provision, provision, faithfulness over and over and over. But instead, he says, strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. Instead of pronouncing judgment upon the people, which would have cost them their lives, God says, strike the rock. And when Moses strikes that rock, what he's doing is he's pronouncing judgment upon the Lord. The Israelites asked, Is the Lord trustworthy? Is he good? Has he brought us up out of Egypt simply to kill us? He's not good if that is his plan. And the Lord says, oh, oh, you need to see my heart. Moses, pick up the staff, and instead of proclaiming judgment upon them, where they rightfully deserve death, strike me and pronounce judgment upon me because that's the only way that they can be spared and the only way that they can live. And then what does he do? The rock is struck and the water begins to flow. I I was picturing this, this is just hopefully sanctified imagination, I don't know, but I, I kind of imagined it as he strikes that rock and the water just begins to trickle and then it picks up in steam and it begins to flow and the water just comes rushing out of that rock. And the Israelites come up thirsty and hungering for life, and they come up and they kneel down at the rock and they cup their hands, and they start drinking, and they start wiping it on their bodies and bathing, and, and it's life-giving water. But it's life-giving water that came only after the Lord said, I'm going to be the one to take what they rightly deserve upon myself. Is God good? So we look clearly where this points, is to the cross, right? Where instead of just grumbling, you have jeering and hatred and animosity, and you have torture, and you have Jesus who died in our place that living water might flow. It's, it's beautiful, right? A Few centuries after this, when Jesus encounters the, the woman at the well, they have this fascinating conversation and he says, you know, can you give me a drink? She says, ah, the well's deep. And uh, he says, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And you have this this beautiful picture kind of taking place there, right? You have this woman who is in, in some ways such a picture of the fall. Her life is a total wreck. Part of it is a result of her own sin, and part of it is a result of the judgment and the sin of those around her. And you have her sitting with the Savior of the world. This picture of light and darkness. You have this glorious kind of juxtaposition of reality. Is God good? The Israelites saw his power, right? They saw the power of being able to part the sea, they saw the power in being able to provide. But power very rarely engenders life-transforming faith, maybe fearful obedience, but not necessarily a conviction of goodness. So God shows them his heart, his heart of love for his people, assuming their guilt and providing life. And then there at the well. Is God good? You have God incarnate in flesh, fully man, sitting there with a woman who's just gotten the dregs of life, both self-imposed and from the world around her. A woman who would have been taught that the God of Israel not a good God. The worship of the God of Israel is not the right way. Literally buffeted by the effects of the fall. But in their encounter there, I think we need to see kind of the reality of the paradox of the good and the tragic. If we're going to be honest about what life is like, we know that that the good is so good and so sweet but we know that the hard is so hard and so tragic. So how can we trust Jesus and how can we know that he is good? Because he doesn't take away the hard. Instead, he enters into it, light into darkness, doctor into sickness, the good one into the devastating. He reached out to people with infectious skin diseases, put mud on blind eyes. He cast demons out of people who are tortured. He offered living water to this woman who's literally a shell of what a life should look like. He knew betrayal. He knew injustice. He knew physical torture. He knew cruelty that was truly unimagined. And Tish Harrison Warren tells this story about a pastor preaching one time. And he said, you cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. Hear that, think about that. You cannot trust God to keep bad things from happening to you. Is that a good God? God did not keep bad things from happening to God himself. So we live life in this world of deep complementarity of truth. The world is beautiful and the world is ugly. People are kind and people are cruel. God does not keep us from suffering, but he is good. The cross is the greatest act of cruelty and the greatest act of mercy in all of history. Here's the great mystery. We have a God who, when we suffer, suffers with us. When we suffer, we are actually participating in the fullness of Christ's life. Mysteries so profound that we have trouble grasping them, but it's not because of the poverty of the mystery. It's because of the richness of it. And we know that there are real questions. There are hard questions about God's goodness, some that he will reveal in time, others perhaps not. But the depth of that mystery is due to the richness of God's mercy and goodness. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is lover of our souls. It's not simply, is he good? But it's as he told the rich young ruler, he's the only one who is good. He's the one who became incarnate, humbling himself, that he might become like one of his creatures while maintaining full divinity. He might touch the sick and the dying. Let a woman who is unclean touch his clothes and look into her eyes and let her know that she's known and that he too can be known, that she's a daughter. He's Father God, who actually loves us so much that he's willing to die to pay the price that we never could for our sin. Then rise victorious from the grave, sending us Holy Spirit, that we might actually have new hearts new lives, as new creations. Some time back, I was meeting with, uh, with my pastor, and it was this time where, circumstantially, things were just a bit overwhelming and, and harder than I had kind of walked into for a, a really long time. And I told him that I was kind of in a place where, when I was encouraging others, that God was going to act mightily in their lives, and that God cared about them, and loved them, and was good. When I was counseling others in that, I absolutely 100% believed it. The deepest conviction that I have, I believed it. But I could not for the life of me believe it for myself. I couldn't get to the place where I believed that God actually cared enough about my circumstances that he was going to do something marvelous and good. And my pastor, midst of several other things, he said, well, at some point you're just gonna have to trust. And it was the most profound thing anyone has ever said to me. Because when you look back at the faithfulness of God through the entire course of history, from the Garden of Eden Abraham Moses the cross the resurrection our lives looking back at God's faithfulness over and over and over it's not just that he's trustworthy it's that he's good amen let's pray Father, we do not pretend that life is simple. We know that the world is full of paradox, and we are so grateful that you are not. Thank you for being our good God. Will you please drill that truth deeply into our hearts, our minds, and our very souls? We ask in Christ's name, amen.